message tonight, our message tonight is from Psalm 3. Psalm 3. We've been looking at, at Readville, we've been looking at the, going in a, through a series of the Psalms, looking at verses, Psalms 1 through 9, the first nine Psalms. And this week we are looking at Psalm 3, and so we'll look at it tonight as well. Um, typically, just a, a brief note about it, that the titles of the, the titles of the Psalms, this is the first one, in the Psalter, it says it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. An interesting fact is that these um, that these titles are usually also part of the psalm itself. They usually make up the first verse in Hebrew, and it usually is appropriate to, to remember that this is setting the context for, for this psalm, psalm in particular. Some of them stand without context. And so this one sets us the context where when, Abs- when uh, Absalom takes over and he's trying to Lead from or uh, lead people away from King David and his rule. That this is the the cry, the cry for help, or the cry of confidence where God, where David is calling to God to save him and to deliver him. With those things in mind, we now hear God's word from Psalm three, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we again come before you in thanksgiving and praise to hear your word read and sung. But I pray that as you bless the reading and singing of your word, I pray also you will especially bless the preaching. And I pray, Father, that, again, you will help us to hear your voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd, as we hear from your word. And I ask it all in his dear name. Amen. There is a um, story that I heard, and probably in a sermon itself, about a lady who was one time working, this one time working for a pharmaceutical company. And one of the things that she had to do but she had to be able to, you know, review shipments and review packaging as she was as it was about to go out. Usually for the sake of the liability of the the company that she was working for, but also for the sake and and well-being of the customers buying the product. And one time she was herself looking for looking at this order that she was reviewing and noticed some discrepancies in there that led her to believe that she could not uh, ship it out. And in fact, really, she couldn't be able to ship it out. Uh, and when confronted, when she made, made this known to her supervisor, her boss, one of the things that he ended up saying was that she needed to send it out anyway. She just needed to send it out irrespective of the risk, irrespective of the harm that it might cause because they needed to get it out. They, they had to make this, make, this, uh, make this deal or make this shipment. And when she said, well, you know, your job for me is to tell me not to do, to do that in a case like this. I can't do that. And what the boss and supervisor ended up telling her, saying, if you don't actually send this out, you will lose your job. 
And inevitably, you know, you, you can sort of think, like, what kind of anxiety, what kind of fear that might cause, especially if you're someone like her who has family to provide for, who has a mortgage, who has car insurance, who has all these different kinds of things that she has before her. And the threat of losing a job, no doubt, causes a great deal of fear and consternation. And the real reality is we've all been there. In fact, when we look at the psalm with King David, it's not just simply, you know, a matter of livelihood. He has people actually coming after him to take his own life. Now, the, re the ending of that story for the woman we'll come back to at the very end. But as we would naturally expect her to be afraid and expect her to be anxious, even more so like with King David as he's facing his own son who's coming at him, I wonder what our responses would typically be. What is our responses when we're afraid? What are our responses when we are faced with, with a future reality that we don't know how it's going to play out? Do we just sit up, sit back in our closets and in our chairs and mope and say, oh, woe is me and what's going to happen? Or do we turn to the one who alone can hear our prayers and ultimately deliver us from our, from our burdens, our problems, what causes us to be afraid to begin with? And that's really what we find here today. As I mentioned, King David was being led out of his was being led out of his own kingdom, and in a lot of ways for his own doing. If you remember back from 2 Samuel, he was actually, supposed, he was actually guilty of a, high crime, of a high crime. Not only is he as the Lord's anointed, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, but even in order to cover it up, he had, his, had her husband Uriah killed on the front line. So he was guilty of murder in the same process. And the Lord promised him, he showed him that throughout his life he would have a lot of trials and tribulations with respect to his house that would never be at peace. And that this issue with Absalom is a very manifestation of that. And yet, even still, even still, what we learn from this text is that you, just like King David, should be confident in the Lord's power to deliver you from trouble. You should be confident in the Lord's power to deliver you from trouble. And I want to unpack that idea in three ways. First of all, we need to see what the world tells you. In verses 1 to 2. Second, we need to see what the Lord does for you in verses 3 to 4. And then third of all, we need to see the what the, your confidence is in you in verses 5 to 8. What the world tells you, what the Lord does for you, and what your confidence is in you. And we're following that, that division by the Salahs that you see in your text. They're metrical notes, and so they're usually used to get you to think back and ponder. So we outline it in that way. That's why it's that somewhat irregular. But anyway, let's look at that first idea about what the world tells you. Verse 1 and 2. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. There's a lot of important historical context behind this. We've mentioned a lot of it. Like, what's the situation? But more than that, it wasn't just like a couple of people that, that Absalom is actually leading in a rebellion against God. In fact, we, we, won't, we don't have time to go through it tonight, but if you would, were to go back and look at 2 Samuel 16 and 17, one of the things that uh, Absalom did was he would go out in the center, city center and he would judge cases for the people and he was winning the hearts of the people for him. And when he went out to Hebron to, to erect his new kingdom, to erect his rebellion against, against King David, he didn't have just him and his family leave with him. He had some 200 other people with him as well. Some of David's best friends, his most trusted advisors, went out with, with the prince, with Prince Absalom. 
And more than that, as, as the rebellion kept going, it lasted for a good time. There were many hundreds, many other thousands of people that ended up supporting Absalom's rebellion. And so the context of this is David's crying out to the Lord. You know, there, there, are many, there are all these problems here before me. There are all these people seeking to destroy me. And you can almost imagine the pain and frustration that King David is feeling, not just because this is some enemy, but because this is his own son, the betrayal of his own son, who's seeking to usurp his kingdom from, out from under him. Now, I imagine most of you have, have children or grandchildren or, or know someone who does, and whenever you feel as though your, your child has hurt you, it's one thing, but when you feel just utterly so hurt that it feels like you are betrayed, you, can, you feel the, the weight, you feel the heartbreak that happens when, the, when, the, when they do that. And that's the same sort of heartbreak that pulls us in because that's no doubt what's on David's mind as well. The world is telling him that there are too many problems, not because of his own sin, not because of his own problems, but because of everybody else that is seeking out not just to take his kingdom, but even to take his own life. And this is a man, King David, who has withstood a lot of pressure in his life. He withstood the opposition of King Saul, who, even when David was in his court trying to minister to him with music, he, King Saul threw a spear at him, trying to impale him on the wall. I mean, this is a man who's, who's endured a lot, but nothing quite like that of the betrayal of his son. And he feels quite, quite literally, physically, spiritually alone. And everybody's telling him that because one of the things that there are too many problems, people are telling him there are too many reasons to doubt as well. You look at verse 2 where it says, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. There, there, there couldn't possibly. The context behind this most directly and clearly comes in 2 Samuel where Shimei, one of, one of the prophets, one of these, these figures in and David's life is going out about him saying, you know, the reason why, David, you have this going on in your life is because of your sin with, Uriah, with Bathsheba and against Uriah. It's because of your sin. You know, you remember King Saul, how he disobeyed the word of the Lord and the kingdom was taken from him. This is a testimony of that. This is a testimony, David. You couldn't possibly have God as your deliverance because this is all from him. God does not care for you. He's abandoned you. He's taken everything away from you. And yet what, one of the things that David has in his own mind is that even while he's being told that, his own still confidence, as we'll see in the remainder of this text, is that he doesn't believe it. And that's really one of the things we need to remember here from this text is that we shouldn't believe the world when they tell us that there's no hope in Christ, that there's no way of deliverance, there's no way of salvation, that Jesus is not possibly the only way, not just from deliverance from our problem, not just deliverance from our sins, but deliverance from our own everyday problems as well. They'll tell us that, and sometimes we believe it. Because you look out at the unbelieving world, and you, you, you see, see a lot of what happens, some of the moral evils, some of the natural disasters that tend to happen. The fact that we have shootings in public places, or children dying of hunger, or undergoing an immense, serious diagnoses that affect us every day. And there are people that wonder the question, why? Why? And the world will tell you something very, very painful for a, even for believers to hear. It's like, if God is so loving, he would not have let this happen to you. But the confidence of the Christian, as we'll see throughout the remainder of this text, is that we, even though that the world tells us that, 
we ought not to believe it because if our confidence is in the Lord's power, we know that it's in his power also to deliver us from it, to preserve us through it. You know, God is certainly powerful to prevent a lot of the world's problems, a lot of the world's sicknesses and diseases and everything else that happens. But he shows his power and his greatness and his glory even more in his preservation for us through it as well. So that leads us to the second thing here as well. Not only does what the world tell us, but in the second place we see what the Lord does for us in verses 3 to 4. In verse 3 to 4 he says this, But you, are Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. He's invoking the Lord's covenant name. He's saying, you know, you are the same God. I am that I am. I will be that I will be. You're the same God who, when you revealed yourself to Moses, you said, I will deliver my people from Egypt, and I will deliver you now as well. That's the name that he's invoking. That's the name that he's invoking here. And look what he, how he characterizes it. Look how he describes it. He says, first of all, three, three things. The first thing is, you are a shield about me. Now, in the ancient world... Uh, there were many different types of shields that would happen, particularly uh, in, in Greek military, they would have these, these round shields that would protect their upper body, and, but not usually their lower body. That's not really the type of shield that Jesus is talking about here because those don't protect you, protect you for very much. What, you, what uh, the psalmist is actually describing is something of a shield that's probably more like a Roman shield that's about as big as this pulpit here. It, create, it was a protection for your upper body and your lower body. And whenever the Romans would, would set their, their uh, shields down for defense, it would be set down to protect them here. And someone would actually take the same shield and put it over their head so that they can at least defend themselves on the one hand. But if anything were able to jump over them or try to attack them from behind or in front or anywhere else around, they would have some degree of protection. And that's what, da- what King David is describing here. You are my shield. You protect every nook and cranny of my life. You will not let me be def- led defenseless. And even when David is most, is most presently alone, he's saying that. But the second thing he says here is, you're not just my shield, but you're my glory. You know, the riches of your glory, the riches of your power, the riches of your love, those things are enough for me. That's my dignity. That's what I look to. There was a, there was a pastor, I've been, I'd been reading Tim Keller in the last couple of weeks, and one of the things that he brought out in one of his books, he says, you know, sometimes Jesus is, you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And in a place like this where David has quite literally hundreds of thousands of people circling about him trying to take his own life, you almost get the sense that in his own heart and mind, he probably does feel that way. That he is alone, but that Jesus Christ is all he has, and he is satisfied with that. You are my glory. You're the one who raised me from the dead. You're the one who gives me life. You're the one who really sustains my life. You're the one who goes about me and protects me. You are my glory. But third of all, he says, you are the lifter of my head. It's a language of restoration. It's a language that, said, that says, you know, when, when my head is down, you are picking me up. You're restoring me. You, 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 when I come to you in faith and repentance and faith, you forgive me. You save me and you keep me saved. You, I don't have to worry about the, what the world is telling me. The world's telling me that there is no salvation. There's no hope. There's no deliverance. But David is saying that I, if, if this really is from the hands of the Lord, and I know that it is because of my sin, 
He's already forgiven me. And he will restore me. And in fact, throughout the remainder of David's life, that's exactly what he did. Not only does he protect him then, but he also hears him. He cries out to him. He, he cries out aloud to the Lord, and, answer, and the Lord answered him from his holy hill. If you were here a week ago where we looked at Psalm 2, that language of you know, God answering from his holy hill is the same holy hill, Mount Zion, where God, is, where God is at, his presence, where he's actually executing his judgment. But it's not just his throne room where he executes judgment, but it's also the place where, like what the he, author of Hebrews says, you, know, you enter into his throne of grace to seek grace and help in your time of need. He invites all of his children, children in, especially in their deepest and darkest distress, because they're they're crying aloud. They're crying aloud for help, quite literally. That's what a prayer is. Essentially, uh, comes down to at least in David's case, he's crying aloud. He's making his voice voice known. Now, I'm sure many of you have children, grandchildren, or grandchildren, and uh, whenever they're in distress, what what do they tend to do? They tend to cry. They cry, can sometimes cry for help. In fact, I was watching a video one time where um, I was watching a video one time where this uh, man or woman, I can't remember which, is is making a mad dash to to her son, to his his or her son. Like I mean, this kid, he's making a blood curdling cry. Like you know what we're talking about here. Like you know, just screaming at the tops of their lungs, freaking out. And when they get there, what do they find here? But but a frog, and like the, kid, the kid's freaking out over a frog that's sitting in front of him. And then he really goes ballistic when the frog jumps on his face. And, but yet, at the same time, the, the, the parent runs over to the child. He runs over the child to, like, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of funny, but the kid's genuinely afraid, and the parent runs over to him. And relative to the, to the, to the, to the dilemmas, the trials and tribulations that we have, they're relatively minor compared to God's power, and yet at the same time, when we cry to him for help, he still comes down to our aid. And that teaches us something really very important about prayer, that not only when we approach God in prayer, not only is he a judge and a king that we enter into, but he's our heavenly father who when we cry to him for help, he answers. When we cry to him for help, he answers. You know, I don't know what any of your prayer life, anyone's prayer life here is like, but if I could maybe throw out a couple of things. There are some times when you pray and you feel like, or maybe even think, that God's not listening. Um, perhaps you get the sense of, you know, you, you go into prayer and you feel bad, one, uh, you feel terrible, about something you said or did at one moment, and then when you get up from your prayer, from your knees in prayer or your chair, whatever it might be, you feel even worse. Because whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're bringing to the Lord's feet, it, it's it's obviously that sort of self condemnation that that comes down on it. And there is a place for confession of sin. There is a place in prayer where we do confess our sin. We make it known to God that we might know of his free and full forgiveness. But the reason why sometimes we might feel that way is particularly because that's all we see him as. We only see him as a judge. We only see him as condemning us. And inadvertently, we begin, we begin to feel that to do that with other, with other people around us. Because that's how we understand God. 
and we find no satisfaction, we find no joy in prayer and communing with God because he doesn't hear us, and even if he does, he's a judgmental bully on us, and he makes us feel even worse. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we don't lay down our sins at his feet, and it doesn't mean that we don't have sorrow for our sin. No doubt King David did. And, in fact, in one of his psalms, in Psalm 51, he, he even says in that psalm, you know, it's against you and you only have I sinned. And yet, at the same time, he knows what's true for him as well as what's true for you. That if you give your heart to Jesus Christ and repent in penance, repentance, true repentance, and cling to him by faith, he hears you, he answers you, and he saves you. He delivers you. And David has that knowledge. And you have that knowledge as well, such that in the third place, we have to recognize what our confidence is in. And that's what we see in verses 5 to 8, what your confidence is in. And the first thing is, it's knowing that the Lord sustains you. Verses 5 to 6, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. In fact, the, the emphasis really is missing. I'm reading from the ESV, and the emphasis is missing in verse 5 as it is, I lay down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me me or sustains me what sort of what sort of confidence is this that david can get that even with everybody seeking his own life what what's this confidence that he has for the fact that he can just lay down like nothing's going on and he can sleep and he can wake up in the morning refreshed and rejuvenated because of the lord's covenant love for him in sustaining him even through that even sustaining him through that, giving him life, giving him limb, being thankful for what the Lord has given him already, but recognizing that even what the reason why at least David's in this particular situation is because of his sin, and even through that, the Lord has preserved him through the troubles, and he knows that if that because of the, this is this is because of his sin, but he also knows that if this is from the Lord, and he is truly the Lord's beloved one, he is truly the Lord's anointed. He knows something that you know as well if you are the Lord's child. And that is this, that even when you cannot avoid the troubles and tribulations, and you won't, he still protects you through them. Because David can sleep down and know because the Lord is sustaining him. To where he says, I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. Those very people who are seeking to attack him from all sides. It doesn't matter whether whether it's his own heart condemning him. It doesn't matter whether or not whether or not it's uh, or at least Satan accusing him. It doesn't matter if it's Absalom leading a revolt against him. It doesn't matter if it's the 200 people that turn from David to, King, to Prince Absalom. It doesn't matter if it's 10,000 or 20,000 or 100,000 people who have encircled the city of David to, to, seek his, to seek him out and to kill him. He knows that one thing is true. If this is the Lord's doing, I will be delivered. That's how he faces fear. That's how he faces fear, knowing that even, even though I, I am that child that, that's afraid, the Lord gives me confidence because he's my father in heaven, and he says, I will take care of it. This is my business. This is my work. It's not yours. And that's freeing. And that teaches us that our confidence in the Lord's power tells us to put away fear and anxiety. It tells us to put away fear and anxiety. Now, I was listening to a sermon which kind of 
you know, divided those two things. What's it mean to be afraid and what's it mean to be anxious? Fear, is, as he described it, was, was usually something more directed at something in particular, like, like something that's right there in front of you. It has, it has concrete. It's, it's, it's like, like right here. It's like me being afraid of Rick for coming up here later. Like maybe even he would hurt me or something. I don't know. That, that's kind of what it is. Anxiety, on the other hand, is, is something that's almost amorphous. It sort of hangs in the air. You know, you feel as though you're out of control. You're anxious because you're overwhelmed or you're out of control. And what the Lord's power and confidence tells us is that you need to put all of that away. You need to put all of that away because it's, first of all, saying that God's not powerful enough to overcome it. But in the second place, it's not, trust, it's not trusting him to, to actually sustain you the way he is King David, practically, personally, in the face of an actual problem where we, we're not actually uh, having people come to take our lives like David is, and yet he can still say, I won't be anxious, I won't be afraid, because I know the Lord is sustaining me. If he has the power, I have no need to be afraid. And my call is just simply to trust him. We get better at it over time, but we are always still finding something to be afraid or anxious about, overwhelmed about, like we're out of control. But if we're aware of who God is, and if we're aware of his power, and we remember who he is and who we are in Christ, then there's no reason to be afraid and there's no reason to be anxious. But in another way, our confidence is not just simply in the fact that the Lord sustains us, but in the third place, second place also, he delivers us as well. You remember at the beginning that, the, that David's enemies were saying there is no salvation for him in God? In the final place, we see this. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing upon his people. You know, it's it's a call for God to action, really. That's what these are what these are. It's saying, Arise, save me, really deliver me. It's a call for God's action because He knows what He's doing and in, what He's done in the past. He's He's vanquished all of His enemies before. He delivered the, the Israelites from Egypt. He delivered them from, from the Philistines. He delivered them from He ultimately led them back from the Assyrians and the uh, Babylonians. And he delivers you ultimately from that thing which you most need deliverance from, and that is the, the, the wrath of God due to you for sin. And if he delivered you from that because of his great love for you, that you may be accepted fully and perfectly and know his love, if he can do that, then how much more then can David not come to, to God in boldness and saying, Arise, get up as it were, like save me. You said you would, you have, save me now. And, it, and you can almost get something of a, of a note of anger, maybe a note of frustration. It's like you're, you, you know, he uses the enemies. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You, you break them, break the teeth of the wicked. He's like, break their teeth now. Do it now. And because of the Lord's love for him, he can say this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Knowing I can't do this. I can't save myself in this situation or from sin. I can't save me, but my Lord can. My God can. And he does, and he offers that fully, freely, and perfectly. That if we give our hearts to him, he will save us from the penalty of our sin. And keep us saved for all eternity. Such that is then our confidence that when we pray, we pray with the confidence, not as if God won't hear, but knowing that he does. 
David cries to him knowing that as long as he's, at, as he's asking according to his will, if he's asking according to his character, for his righteous character and his will, then he knows he will answer him. In the final place we know, we remember from that woman at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of the sermon, she ultimately was fired from her job. She was ultimately fired from her job, but she was did find the other work that did meet all of her needs. And what ended up happening at the end of it was that even though she followed the Lord's will, she was obedient, she knew she wouldn't lie, and she didn't, that he would still protect her and sustain her and provide for her as he did with the job. And what ended up happening to her supervisor and boss and, other, and some other employees that covered this up as well, they ended up losing their jobs and they ended up going to prison as well because she understood two things. If I am a Christian, I obey his word and I don't, and I don't lie. And even if someone threatens me with my livelihood, I know that my Lord will still protect me and and deliver me and sustain me as he did. And our confidence is in the fact that he does that as he did in that woman's life, as he does in yours as well. And the call ultimately is to trust him. The world tells us not not that he won't deliver you, that he doesn't even care. But we know that he does and that if we cry to him for help, he will. Because he see, when he, see, he hears our cries for help and when we, we pray to him, he's hearing those who have been accepted fully and perfectly in his son who he, he, who he does hear. And if he hears Christ's prayers, he will hear yours as well if you are in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. And I pray that you will impress these truths on our hearts and trust you more have our confidence not in ourselves, but in you. And I ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Our final hymn is hymn 188, Jesus I am resting, resting, hymn 188, and we'll sing the first and the fourth verse. The first and fourth verse of hymn 188. Stand with me as we